This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. So I encourage you to grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 1 this morning. We're continuing our series entitled Sure and Steadfast. If you have the Hui Kala app on your mobile device, and if you don't, you should get it right now. Uh, you can click on today's message and click on a button that says fill in notes. Uh, you actually take a look at the notes for today's message. Uh, follow along that way. <laughs> whether you do that or whether you uh, just jot some thoughts down uh, on a sheet of paper with you today, take good notes and pay really close attention today uh, as we move through this series. Just kind of give you a heads up where we're going. Four weeks from today is our Easter Sunday celebration. I don't know about you, but it's tough to believe that Easter is four weeks away. It's going to be awesome. Uh, we're going to celebrate like never before. Uh, we'll also be having a baptism uh, service that day, so I want to encourage you to make plans after the uh, 10 o'clock service. Head over to Almona Beach Park. We'll be baptizing over there on Easter Sunday. It's going to be a great time together for sure. But plan on being here four weeks from today. Over the next four weeks, we're going to wrap up our series on hope. So we're kind of coming down, landing the plane at this point. Uh, four final weeks as we talk about what the Bible says about hope. Starting the Sunday after Easter, probably the, the most, uh, I guess you would say, ambitious uh, study we've ever done through the Bible together. R- the book of Romans starts uh, verse by verse every single Sunday, probably for the next three years, I would guess, on Sunday mornings. And so it's going to be a while. There's just so much good stuff there. I'm really excited about that. If you want to read ahead, you can read the book of Romans. Man, it's going to knock your socks off. So uh, plan on that. Uh, that, that'll start five weeks from today, so I'm really excited about that. But today we find ourselves in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter number one. Uh, and so uh, grab your Bibles, Hebrews chapter one. We're going to start in verse number one. We're just going to read the whole chapter because it's all good. We're really going to focus on verses one through ten uh, here today for the most part, but we'll read through the whole chapter this morning. Hebrews chapter one, starting in verse number one. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom he also made the worlds. Who being the brightness of his glory and express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels he say at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be unto him a father, and he shall be unto me a son. And again, we bringeth the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. And the angels, he saith, who maketh the angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they shall wax old as doth the garment. And as a vesture thou shalt fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which the angels he at any time saith, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? 
I don't know about you, but have you ever had a time where there was a, a song that you really liked that you wanted other people to like too, or like a, a movie or a TV show that you wanted to watch with somebody to show them how awesome it was, and you were really pumped up about it? My wife does this sometimes. She'll say, I got this song that I heard the other day that I want you to listen to, and so we'll be sitting in the car, and she'll be like, I know you're going to be negative about it, but try to keep a, a good attitude. And it's like, okay. And so I'll listen to a song and be like, yeah, yeah, it was okay. And she's like, oh, are you kidding me? I love that song. Or maybe you sat with somebody while you're watching a, a movie with them. You've seen it, but they haven't. And, and like a funny part comes up, and like you laugh, and you look to see if they're laughing, but they're not laughing. And you're like, oh, man, like this is good. Like you should enjoy this. This is good. And it's kind of a bummer when people don't appreciate things the way that you appreciate it, right? The writer of Hebrews, who most Bible scholars, and I would agree, believe would be the Apostle Paul, although he's not actually named as the author in this. Uh, we say that because some of the words that are used in the book of Hebrews are used only in Paul's writing, only a handful of times throughout the entire Bible. Uh, the writing style is very similar. The things that he says would be things that Paul would have known or would have made a, a, a big deal about. And so the author of Hebrews, whether it be Paul or whoever it is, the Holy Spirit wrote it in the end, basically is writing to a group of Jews, the Hebrews. And these are people who have already rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah. They don't want anything to do with Jesus. They're going to stick with Judaism, the Levitical law, and wait for the arrival of the, quote, real Messiah. And so they've rejected Jesus outright. And so Paul here... Or Whoever wrote Hebrews, I won't say Paul, but I'll say the author of Hebrews here is writing to a group of people who don't like Jesus, encouraging them to really like Jesus. That's kind of the idea of here. And we find, what we find in chapter one here is just so rich, so powerful, that at the end of it, I think you and I can step back and go, wow, Jesus, what a wonderful Savior. And that's the idea of the writer of Hebrews. He wants people to get excited about how great Jesus is. Now, the book of Hebrews goes very well together with reading the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Now, Leviticus on its own can be a drag, uh, right? It's really hard because it's just a lot of law, a lot of rules, a lot of uh, explanation of what you have to do when you break the rules, and the sacrifices you have to make, and the type of sacrifices, and how to restore this. But when you read the book of, of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and see how it points to the book of Hebrews and how it's fulfilled in the person of Christ, man, it really becomes alive. Man, it really pops uh, at that point, and you get a greater appreciation. So as the writer of Hebrews writes to these Jews who do not like Jesus, who are not Christians, he encourages them, hey, you need to take a second look because Jesus is really good. So how does this apply to you and I? Well, hopefully you find yourself today as a big time proponent of Jesus, like more than a fan, committed follower, disciple altogether. And we find ourselves in the midst of a world today that really looks at Jesus and goes, no, nah, I think I'm good. So we have much the same responsibility as the author of Hebrews in the fact that we're living in a generation, we're living in a world that doesn't see the value or the need for Jesus, and it's our job to help people to find the value and the need for Jesus. As we look at this passage of Scripture, we see, first of all, in, in verse number one, he tells us, in the times past... And in a multitude of different ways, God spoke to our fathers, meaning the, the Jewish uh, ancestors, spoke to them by the prophets. So it was the prophet's job to hear from God. Many times audibly, the prophet would hear from God's voice. God says, hey, go tell people I said this, and they would go and tell them. He said, hey, in times past, that's how we heard. But now, verse number two, take a look at this. God has spoke to us in these last days 
by his son. And so we see, first of all, that God has spoken to us by Jesus Christ. So God could have given us a multitude of ways. God could have continued to speak through prophets. God could have continued to speak, speak through dreams. Uh, God could have continued to speak through visions. But God doesn't speak that way anymore. God has spoken once and for all. And how did he do it? He did it through his son, Jesus. That's why for us as Bible-believing Christians, we believe that God has spoke authoritatively through his word, and God doesn't speak any longer unless it is through his word. Everything we have is in the Bible. We don't need what we refer to as an open, continual revelation. God has spoken through his word. It's completed, and we no longer need any new revelation grinds my gears when you hear pastors they're usually on tv because somebody has decided uh, that they deserve a platform but they say things like we just need a fresh word from god today hey we don't need a fresh word we've got all 66 books of god's word at our disposal we might need a fresh look at god's established word but we don't need a new word we would also say that we don't uh, allow god to speak to us through dreams or or visions or wonders or circumstances God speaks authoritatively through his word. Now, can God use other people or circumstances to speak? Yes, but we put those very low on the list of how God speaks. God always speaks through his word, and the Bible tells us in Hebrews 1, how has he done that? He's done it through his son. So what does God say when he speaks through his son? Well, first of all, we see that Jesus is a fulfillment of the message of the prophets. Old Testament prophets said, hey, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be someone that will come. We'll call him the Messiah, which means the chosen one. He's going to come and he's going to deliver the people from their sins. And Jesus came and fulfilled those prophecies. 300 at least. That's just being conservative on the prophecies of the Old Testament. 300 to 350 prophecies we see fulfilled just in the birth, death, burial, resurrection of Christ. 300 to 350 prophecies fulfilled just in Jesus and so we look and say, okay, this is the guy that we've been waiting for. That's what Paul is, or, I'm sorry, don't, I didn't say Paul. The writer of Hebrews is saying, I didn't say that out loud, scratch that. The writer of Hebrews is saying, God has spoken back in the day through the prophets, but now he's spoken through his son Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies. Isaiah chapter 9, verse number 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. We see that Jesus Christ also is proof that God keeps his promises. <coughs> God spoke and he fulfilled it. He promised that he was going to take care of it, and he did. If we rewind to the book of Genesis chapter number 3, where man has colossally messed up his relationship with God. Adam and Eve were told, don't eat of the fruit of the tree in the center of the garden. And what did they do? Eve ate it. She was deceived. She didn't know any better. But she gave it to Adam, and Adam knew better, and he willingly disobeyed and rebelled against God. And God says, hey, you, from the day that you eat of this fruit, you will die. Now, the devil says, you won't really die. And we would say, well, Adam didn't die right away. The word death means separation. Immediately, Adam's spirit was separated from the spirit of God, and they were no longer had close communion. Please get this. Every time you and I sin, it creates division between us and God and separation from God every single time. And so there was a death of his spirit. His soul at that moment died the moment that he sinned against God. And God says, okay, 
Adam, you've broken something. You didn't just break it for yourself. You broke it for all of mankind. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Romans chapter 5. Paul tells us by Adam, sin entered into the world. And because of Adam's sin, death has now passed upon all men for all men have sinned. And so God says, great, Adam, good job. You ruined it for the entire human race, but I'm not going to leave you alone. Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15, get this. God says, speaking to the devil, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. God made a prophecy in Genesis chapter 3 that the head of Satan would be crushed, that Satan would have a very small victory in bruising the heel of those that that would trample on him, speaking of Christ. And you're saying, are you saying that God prophesied the coming of the Messiah in Genesis chapter 3? Absolutely. Again, we believe that God has an eternal plan that lasts from eternity past to eternity future. And he knows every single thing that's going to take place in that timeline. God wasn't shocked when Adam sinned against God. He already had a plan in place so that God could redeem mankind. And it was Jesus. And Jesus was the fulfillment of that promise. Now, it would be thousands of years before that promise was fulfilled, but take this to the bank. When God makes a promise, he always comes through. So you might look and say, okay, that's great. I'm thankful for Jesus. How does this apply to me? Get this. The Bible is a book of God's promises to you and I. Some of those are conditional promises. We've got to do our part to get the promise that God promises. But please don't make any mistake. God has promised you and I to care for us, to supply for every need that we have, to look out for us, to work everything for our our good and for his glory. All these are promises that God's given to us. And if he's made those promises, you can count on them. I mean, if if I make you a promise, I might forget. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand how many times I've forgotten to do things that you asked me to do because I know there'll be way too many hands. I don't want to do that. Uh, But so many times people say, oh, I don't know if you remember, you know, I asked you a couple weeks ago if you could do this. I was like, oh, I forgot. Or I told you I was going to send you an email. I forgot to send you an email. Uh, I'm not going to ask you again if you've ever sent me an email. I didn't respond because I know everybody's hand would be up. It's ever emailed me in the history of life. Uh, But here's the thing. I'm going to let you down. I'm going to make promises that I can't keep, not because I'm a terrible person, just because I'm human. God doesn't make promises that he can't keep because God's not human. God can't tell a lie. He's not a regular man like you or I. God is God. And if God makes a promise, you and I can trust in it. You and I can take it to the bank because it's always good. Jesus also speaks to us. And Jesus has started something. He's the beginning of a new age that will never end. If we take a look in uh, verse number um, 2. Verse number one, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners, in times in the past and in a multitude of different ways, spake in times past to the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. Now we look at that, those, that phrase, in the last days. We would say that we are living in the last days, for sure. Uh, we would say that Christ can return at any moment. If you take a look at Bible prophecy, the things that are taking place in the world today, we see those being fulfilled right before our very eyes. Uh, Now, again, I'm going to caution you as a church, don't go too far down the prophecy rabbit hole, okay? Because it's really, really deep hole. You get on YouTube and you start watching videos that link to the other videos, linking to other videos, and they start looking at star charts and you begin to study the phases of the moon and what that means for Jerusalem. This happened on this date in Jerusalem with this phase of the moon. It gets out of control, okay? Don't do that. And get this. When God is vague in Scripture, when it comes to things like prophecy in the future, get this, he is intentionally vague. Think about that for a minute. 
Like God wasn't like, oh man, I know the Bible's already done, but I should have included that so that they would know, right? No, he didn't. When he wrote it, he was done. It, whatever is vague is intentionally vague. Get this, if you read through the book of Revelation, you'll find that John sees things happening and a, an angel tells him, stop writing. Don't write this part of what you're seeing. That means that God has told us everything that we need to know about what takes place in the future. It's not up to us to read tea leaves and go on YouTube and find all these crazy forums on the internet to find out really when Jesus is coming back. Because he's coming back when he's good and ready. Simple as that. When the Father tells him to come back. But, so when it says that he's spoken in these last days, it's not talking about end time prophecies. It's talking about Jesus has started a new age that did not exist prior. We would call this the age of the, are you ready for it? The new covenant or the new testament. You say, hmm, new testament. Yeah, it starts with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay, that's the divisions of the Bible. Your, your Bible is divided into the Old Testament and the New Testament. But the word testament literally means the word covenant. So we could say that the Bible is divided into two sections, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And the New Covenant starts with, somebody help me, Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we call those the Gospels, the good news. It's the story of Jesus Christ. When Jesus is at the Passover supper with his apostles, and he tells them, Take, drink, this is my blood of the New Testament. He's not talking about the division of the Bible. He's talking about he's starting a new covenant. After that, he would be crucified, put to death for the sins of mankind. He would die, he would be buried, he would resurrect again the third day of his own power. Thus beginning a new covenant so that all the people of the world could be saved that turned to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. New covenant. Jesus started a new age that now will run until his return. So Jesus, Jesus begins this new age, and so the writer of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, is writing to these Jews saying, hey, Jesus now is kicking off a new covenant where he is the covenant keeper. He is authoritative. And mind you, these Jews, this is probably going to, caused them to, their feathers to be ruffled a little bit. Probably going to be like, wow, how can he say that? Like new covenant. Because if you remember the old covenant, the Jews were the uh, beneficiaries of the old covenant, right? The Abrahamic covenant, that God would give Abraham a land, a seed, a blessing, that Israel would be God's chosen people. Man, they were the beneficiaries of that covenant. Now there's a new covenant? Hold up, wait for a second. But he said, hey, Jesus came and has changed everything from here going forward. And you and I that are not Jews are beneficiaries of this new age that Jesus Christ has started. As we go down through this passage this morning, we also see that God has spoken through Jesus. What does he say about Jesus? He says, first of all, that Jesus is worthy of our worship. Now, this is, it's really important that we define terms before we get started. One of my uh, pet peeves as a pastor is when people relegate the word worship into congregational singing on Sundays. That's not worship. It could be worship, but that's not just how we worship. The word worship literally means to bow down or lay face down in front of. That's what the word worship means. And worship is not a, uh, a position that we find ourselves in. Again, can you imagine if we had to have seating in this room for everybody, but we also had to have enough room for everybody to lay flat out all across the room? We wouldn't have room for that. 
But worship isn't a posture of our body. Worship is a posture of our heart. My heart is laid low before God in recognition of his awesomeness, his majesty, his worth. The word worship literally comes from the word worth-ship. His value is so great in, in comparison to my value, which is below zero. If there were a flow chart, God is at the very top of the flow chart. I didn't even make it into the first hundred pages of the flow chart. I'm so far at the bottom. That's worship. So worship could be songs that we sing. We, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We praise God for the things that he's done. I praise God that I woke up this morning. I praise God that I get to come to church with you folks today. I praise God he's given me an incredible wife and four amazing children. I praise God for those things. He's been good to me. But I worship him because he is God. He didn't have to do anything. He's not required to give me anything. And I don't worship him because he's been good to me. I worship him because he is God. Because he is creator. He is sustainer. He's the God of all promises who keeps his promises. And I worship him for who he is in recognition of who I am. And so Jesus, the Bible tells us, is worthy of our worship as well. I love what verse number three says. Take a look at it, if you would. Speaking of Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. You see, Jesus is the radiant expression of God's glory. We're going to unpack this because it's, it's so, so good. If you grew up in church or you went to Sunday school or anything like that, or you see some of your kids' Sunday school papers that they get from, from church sometimes, and we've tried to screen through these the best that we can in Super Church, and so if we got it wrong somewhere, uh, I'm sorry, I'll blame it on somebody else. But um, <laughs> when we look at the image of Jesus, usually in like Sunday school material, he's usually like a, a skinny little white guy with a perfectly uh, you know, manicured beard, uh, probably shortish, croppish hair. Uh, he always has on a white robe, maybe with a purple tunic uh, across it, and it's easily identified like, Oh, that's obviously Jesus. I mean, he looks like Jesus, you know. Uh, you take a look at, like, non-Christian literature, like Catholic literature and stuff like that. You find uh, Jesus usually has, like, a, a heart that's glowing with, like, thorns around it, a crown of thorns. And he's, like, lifted up. And he's, like, glowing everywhere. It's like, oh, that's obviously Jesus. Or maybe there's a halo around him. You know, the interesting thing about Jesus is if Jesus was in a group of people, you wouldn't be able to pick him out of a crowd. Strange, because the depictions that we often see of Jesus in paintings and artist renderings and things like that really don't look like Jesus a whole lot at all, according to the Bible. Here's what, here's what Isaiah said about Jesus. There was nothing about him that we were drawn to him. There was nothing attractive to his physical appearance. He just looked like another guy. So Jesus wouldn't stand out of a, a group, and believe it or not, Jesus wasn't white either. He was a Middle Eastern Jew. Jesus probably wasn't skinny and lanky and, and looked like he needed to eat a sandwich. Jesus was a carpenter's son, which means he actually did the job that his dad did. And so he was probably working, hauling two-by-fours from Home Depot and stuff like that, like building, I don't know, whatever guys built back then that day. He was probably, he worked with his hands, probably had calluses on his hands, had manly hands, right? He probably wasn't lily white and small and skinny and got pushed around a whole lot. That's probably not an image, appropriate image of Christ. But also, the, the beautiful one in the midst of all these group of ugly people probably wasn't a picture of Christ either. He's just a regular guy. So it's interesting when the writer of Hebrews says that he was the radiant expression of God's glory, yet we're not talking about his physical appearance. Huh. So what was it that Jesus had that drew people to him if it wasn't his physical appearance? 
I submit to you it's the way that he lived his life. You know what's attractive to people? Love. You know what's attractive to people? Joy. You know what draws people in? Peace. You know what allows relationships to maintain and grow? Long-suffering. You know what sets people at ease? Gentleness. You know what draws people in? Goodness. You know what allows people to stick with stuff? Faithfulness. You know what allows people to approach somebody that they don't know very well? Meekness. You know what allows somebody to hold it all together when things are falling apart? Temperance. You say, oh, I should write all those down. God made it really easy for you. Galatians 5, and 23. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. How about that? The radiant expression of God's glory was found in the way that Jesus lived his life. And when you think about this, the radiant expression of God's glory, we get to see God's glory on display all the time. We, we had the opportunity to spend some time at Waikiki this past week, and we were walking uh, one night around uh, sunset. So the sun going down over Waikiki Beach, and it was crazy because, like, people began to, like, come out of their hotels and, like, take pictures on the beach. And as the sun going down, like, lit up gorgeous, like, orange and pink and purple. And it's just like, wow. And you see the, the shadow of the palm trees over the, the sunset. It's just like, whoa, that's incredible. I mean, folks from Kauai, we sat at, uh, at Duke's over by the Marriott and watched the sun go down over there, over the bay. It's beautiful. And, like, everybody stops when the sun goes down. And what do they do? They witness and enjoy and marvel at the glory of God. That's all that is. We can call it a beautiful sunset. It's just the glory of God. We look as the sun begins to rise. We look at Diamond Head. We look at the, the waves crash against the beach. Or we, we drive out on the, the leeward side of the island. We see the waters crashing up against the, the rocks and spraying up in the, to the air. We're like, wow, this is incredible. What is that? It's the glory of God. And everybody stops to enjoy and take pictures of and to soak in and then bask in the glory of God. And here's how good God is. God lets us live places like this. Like people spend their whole life on, to come here on vacation. And we, you and I get to live in a place that it's so easy to find the glory of God. Like, have you ever driven through Oklahoma before? <laughs> I'm not even going to say anything, but you know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> like, you've got to look really hard for the glory of God in a place like that, you know? New Mexico? Like, have you ever driven through New Mexico before? Like, you've you got to, like, look really hard for the glory of God in a place like that. We live in a place easy. But get this. For those from Oklahoma and New Mexico, I'm sorry. Uh, but <laughs> it's ugly. Um, <coughs> sorry, sorry. sorry. I, I know, like, the sun rising up over the brown mesa. I'm sure it's beautiful to somebody. <laughs> I don't see God's glory in that. I see wrath and destruction. Uh, but <laughs> I'm just digging deeper, aren't I? I'm going to stop while I'm ahead. Okay, stop while I'm ahead. But here's the thing. God's greatest expression. Get this, okay? I'm being serious now. This is the real deal. God's greatest expression was not made through nature. It doesn't come in a sunset or a sunrise or a waterfall or the greenery. God's greatest expression of his glory, his crowning achievement of the brilliance of his glory was found in Jesus. Get that. Like, that's the good stuff. Like, God crowning achievement in his creation uh, to, uh, to maximize his glory and to cause the world to stand in awe of who he is. 
Jesus Christ. That's what it says in verse number three, who being the brightness of his glory. John chapter one, verse number 14 talks about the incarnation of Christ. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father. I love John 1.14 too because it embodies the character of Christ that I want so badly for myself and I want so badly for you. It says that we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, but it also says this, full of grace and truth. That Jesus never compromised the truth to be gracious and he was never gracious to the exclusion of truth. That when a woman who was caught at in adultery was brought to him, and they said, hey, judge her for what he's done. He says to the woman, grace, neither do I condemn thee, but truth, go and sin no more. Okay, I'm not going to condemn you, but you can't continue to live like this. He never compromised the truth to be gracious. I want to be like that because so many times I'm, I'm so quick with the truth. Oh, you're wrong. You're 100% wrong. You're going to pay for what you've done. You need punishment, but I forget about grace. And there's times where I'm so gracious where it's just like, oh, it's fine. It's not that big of a deal. Don't worry about it, you know. But I fail to get the truth. I want to be able to be both. And Jesus Christ was perfectly that. He sat with a woman at the well, and he talked with her, and he spent time with her. And he says, hey, go and get your husband. She's like, I don't have a husband. He's like, I know. You, you had five guys over your husband. The guy you're living with not even your husband. But that's not the real issue, is it? Man, he didn't compromise truth. He called her out for her sin, but at the same time, he was so gracious with her. I want to be that. That's what the glory of God looks like. And how about this? For you and I this week, the glory of God can come out in our lives if we do what? We're full of grace and truth. If we're filled with the Spirit of God that draws people to, the, to God himself, that's what Jesus did. So... 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 6, Paul says it this way, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God wanted us to understand him, so what did he do? He sent Jesus. God wanted us to experience unconditional love. So what did he do? He sent Jesus. God wanted us to see grace in action. So what did he do? He sent us Jesus. In times past, verse 1, he spoke by the prophets. But today, verse 2, he's spoken to us by his son. Man, that helps me. And when you and I see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ and we allow that truth to change us, man, everything changes. It's a total, total game changer when you see Jesus for the value that he truly is. We see also in this passage, verse number three, I love this, that Jesus is omnipotent. Take a look at verse number three, who being in the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the power of his word. You see, it's interesting that he uses this word to describe Jesus, that he upholds all things with his word. That means he's all-powerful. And if you know anything about God, God has attributes that we refer to God. God is om omnipresent. He's all places at all time. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. These are what we sometimes refer to as God's non-communicable attributes. They're, they're God's and God's alone. He doesn't share them with anybody else. God is eternal. He always has been. He always will be. Everything else is a created being. But God is eternal. Those are 
attributes of God that he doesn't share with anybody else. The devil has not always been. He's a created being. The devil is not all-powerful. He has limitations to his power. He's not all-knowing. There's limits to his knowledge. He can't be all places at all times. There's limits to where he can be. These are attributes that belong to God and God alone, but Jesus is all-powerful. And get this, take a look at verse number uh, three again. Who in the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. Stay with me for just a second, okay? When God created the heavens and the earth, how did he create? Did he get a bunch of building materials together and kind of start framing everything? How did, he, how did God create? Somebody help me. With his word. He spoke it into existence, right? Jesus, according to verse number three, upholds all things by the word. How were you and I saved? By the word of God. What's another name for Jesus Christ according to John chapter one, verse number one? The word of God. So I submit to you that the word of God is the most powerful thing in the entire universe most powerful substance the word of god so get this if jesus sustains everything by the power of his word if god created everything by speaking it into existence if jesus christ is the word of god and you and i consider the bible which it says is the very word of god then you and i have access to the one who has all power goodness so the word of god all powerful jesus christ all powerful because jesus christ is omnipotent the bible tells us not only is he omnipotent or all powerful he also purged our sins by his own power particularly verse number three upholding all things by the power of his by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So we see that Jesus Christ has the capability to purge our sins. You see, our greatest problem that we have in the world today is not world hunger, not access to clean drinking water. Believe it or not, the greatest problem facing America today is not gender equality, pay gap. Greatest problem in the world is not racism. Greatest problem in the world is not high gas prices or the price of crude oil or even war. You know what our greatest problem is? That's the root of actually all of those things? Sin. That's our greatest issue that we have. Always has been, always will be. Everything else is just a, a fruit issue of the root issue of sin. So God, to deal with our root issue, and again, if we take care of the root, the fruit will care for itself. To take care of our root issue, sin. God sent us a Savior. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, every single one of us. None righteous, no, not one. Not none of us. You might be better than me. I might be better than you, but we all fall short of the glory of God. It's a problem because sin has a price that must be paid. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. All of us are going to die one day, and according to the book of Hebrews... It's appointed unto man once to die, after that, the judgment. You and I will stand before a holy God and we'll give an account of our life. And at that point, payment is due in full for your sins. But here's the thing, the only way that you can pay for your sins, the only way that I can pay for mine is to endure God's punishment. 
God has punishment reserved for those who have sinned against him. It's called hell. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, talks about the great white throne judgment. The dead stood before him, small and great, and they were judged according to those books. Whosoever's name was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. This is the second death. That's what I deserve because I've sinned against God. That's what you deserve because you sinned against God. That's the penalty of our sin. Unless someone could get our sin off of our account, but they would actually have to pay for it. So Romans chapter 5, verse number 8 says, But God commendeth or demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I was supposed to die, but Jesus died for me. I was supposed to be punished for my sin, but Jesus was punished in my place. I was supposed to endure the wrath of God, but Jesus took upon himself the wrath of God because he took upon himself my sin. Because God hates sin with every fiber of his being. Because God must judge sin. When Jesus went to the cross and took upon himself the sins of the world, God had to punish his son. The Bible tells us that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ took my sin and he took it to the cross and he put it to death once and for all. And he purged our sins. But hold up, that purging wasn't a blanket purging for all mankind. It's only for those who would receive him. Because Jesus isn't going to pay for anybody's sin that doesn't want him to. You might say, I'll take care of my sin when I get to heaven. Okay, you're welcome to do that. And God has outlined what that looks like. You'll pay for your sins for all of eternity. Or you can have somebody pay for you. Now, I can't pay for your sin because I have my own sin debt to pay. This church and no church in the world can pay for your sins. You can't wash away your sins by, by tap water or ocean water. You can't do enough religious works to wash away your sins. You can't be good enough to wash away your sins. There's one person that can wash away your sins, and his name is Jesus. And so, friend, there has to be a time, a date, a place for you where you were born again. You need to be saved. There has to be a time, a day, a place in your life where you say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe he's the only way to heaven. And I'm asking God to forgive me of my sins. Faith and repentance. That will save you. You say, well, I don't know that I've ever done that before. Then you should do it today before you leave. It's not about joining our church or becoming a Baptist. You don't have to be baptized or go to a class or anything like that. It's about knowing for sure your sins are forgiven in heaven as your home. That's from the Bible. That's not a Baptist thing. It's a Bible thing. You know for sure that you're saved? If so, your sins have been purged. It's interesting, the idea of being purged is the idea that they just got, got wiped out. Your sins didn't get wiped out. They were paid for. Jesus paid the price. And so he purged our sins by his payment that he made. And so the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 17, wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in pertaining things to God. Get this, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Hebrews 9, 28 goes one step further and says, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him he shall appear the second time without sin unto salvation. The first time Jesus came, he became sin for us. The second time he returns, he will no longer have our sin because our sin was purged. 
So friend, if you're still carrying your sin, I can just say it's a heavy weight to carry. You can let go of it anytime you want to and place it upon Jesus. And Christian, when you continue to hang on to your sin and don't let it go, it gets really heavy too. Rebellious sin against God is some of the heaviest weights you can carry in your life. And please understand, God God put Jesus to death because of your sin. The idea that God's just going to let you get away with sin and pat you on the head and tell you it's okay isn't a biblical view of God. God loves and he chastens. Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read about that sometimes. God chastens the kids that he loves. And if you don't get chastened by God or receive God's discipline, probably because you're not his kid to begin with. That's what the Bible says. But you don't have to carry that weight any longer. Why? Because your sins have been purged. Don't hang on to them any longer. Let them go. Be done with it. Move on. You're free from that because Jesus has made you free. So he purged our sin of his own power. I love this too. Verse number three tells us he's seated at the right hand of the Father. <laughs> Get this. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. It's frustrating me sometimes when I tell my kids to do something and I come back like five minutes later and they're sitting down. What are you doing? I was taking a break. <laughs> you need a break for three minutes of work? Come on. Well, I was going to do it right, right after I finished what I'm doing. Let me finish this level. No. And now, nowadays, can you pause that? Oh, there's no pause in this game. Good, then die. Well, I don't want to let my team down. You're getting ready to let your dad down, and you really don't want to do that, I promise you, right? But it's funny, you know, sometimes I, we, we don't have the liberty of letting my, having my kids cut the grass anymore. That's a bummer, you know, have, not having a yard, because cutting the grass builds character in you, you know, it, it gets you outside in the doors, makes you one with the, the grass, and you get, like, green under your fingernails. It's like a rite of passage, right? We don't have that anymore, unfortunately. Uh, but sometimes when I have my boys cutting the grass, I come outside and they're sitting down. Hey, get up. The grass isn't going to cut itself. Oh, I need a break. I need to take some time. Ah, get up. You can rest later. Get after it. It's interesting when Jesus, we find him seated at the right hand of the Father, it's not because he's tired or needs a break. Think about that for a second. Why is Jesus seated? Not because he's tired, but because he's what? He's finished. He's done. He's done what's necessary. He's completed his task. Why did Jesus come? Jesus said he came to seek and to save that which was lost. So after he purged the sins of mankind, he's done. And he takes a seat at the right hand of the Father. Not because he's tired, but because he's done his work. Jesus says, I didn't come for people to serve me. I came to serve other people. And he did that. And he's done. And he is, get this, patiently awaiting the next phase of his father's plan. What would that be? That would be the rapture of the church. We'll be taken to, to heaven for seven years during the great tribulation. After that, what happens after that? He's not going to take a seat at the right hand of the father anymore. He's going to take a seat on the throne of David in Jerusalem for a thousand years. How about that? But right now, he's just seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting. And when the Father says it's time, he's going to come. But in the meantime, he did exactly what he said he would do. He's come to and accomplished his task, and he is waiting in a position of rest because he's completed his work. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who with the joy that set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, another important Bible lesson here. 
is that when you look through the Bible, the right hand is always the hand of power. It's always the hand of blessing. It's always the hand of favor. So if you're left-handed, I'm sorry, God's right-handed, okay? Just how it is. If you're left-handed, use the hand of weakness, right? <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just, I didn't say it. God said if you're mad, get mad at him. But seriously, though, the right hand is always the hand of, of favor and blessing. The eldest son would always be blessed by the father's right hand. And so when Christ sits at the right hand of the father, he's not sitting in a random location and it just feels better to sit on his right hand. No, he's sitting on the right hand because that's the, the hand of the father's power. The hand of the father's blessing. The place of the firstborn son. And so Jesus is at an esteemed position. Sometimes people think like, well, there's God the Father on the throne, and Jesus is kind of like, like a little throne over here. No, no, no. He's equal with God in his Godhead, in his lordship. And he's at the right hand of the Father because it's the Father's blessing, favor, and power is found in the Son. Hebrews chapter 8, verse number 1 says, Now the things which we have spoken of is this sum which we have a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And so it's interesting, again, as you read through the book of Hebrews, that it'll, it'll come back to this idea again of Jesus Christ as our high priest. In the Old Testament, under the Levitical law, now again, mind you, he's writing to Jews here. In the Le Levitical law, you had to have a go-between between you and God. You couldn't get access God directly. You had to have a high priest. Now, it was the high priest's job once a year on the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur to bring a sacrifice to the altar, cut its throat, bleed it out over the mercy seat that would cover symbolically the sins of the people, and then the priest could make atonement for the sins of the people, and then they would be forgiven. If you look at Jesus Christ, that is a picture. Jesus Christ's blood shed as a covering for our sin. But Jesus Christ is also the one who brings the offering to God. So Jesus has a dual role of sacrifice and high priest. So Hebrews says, we have the only high priest we need now. Hebrews says, we have a sacrifice now once and for all. We don't have to make a yearly sacrifice anymore. Sacrifice has been done. The high priest is not going to be in the temple any longer. The high priest is seated at the right hand of the Father now. And if we take this, again, further and we dig into the Old Testament, and again, uh, grinds my gears when people say, you don't need to read the Old Testament, it's just history. Just read the New Testament, that's the good stuff. No, 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 it's all good. And reading the Old Testament with understanding helps me appreciate the value of Christ. Because I look back at the Old Testament, and God spoke in previous times by the prophets, but now we have a new prophet, and his name is Jesus, and he has spoken once for all authoritatively that we no longer need prophets. Jesus Christ came and was a priest. And Jesus Christ made a sacrifice so that we no longer need sacrifices any longer. He became a greater high priest so we no longer need high priests anymore. He's prophet and priest. And he sits on the right hand of the Father at the throne of God. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. David was the first good king of Israel. And God said to David, I'm going to establish your throne forever. So now Jesus Christ, we no longer need a king because Jesus Christ is our king. He's our prophet, our priest, and king. And he's great greater than anything we could ever possibly imagine. Oh, you don't need to read the Old Testament? Please. 
That's where the good stuff is found. The writer of Hebrews is pleading with these folks. Don't you see our prophet, our priest, our king is Jesus. He's the one that we've been waiting for. And he has a name above all names. Verse number four, take a look at that. Being made so much higher, so much better than the angels, hath the inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Again, when he came to the angels, he's not just a little bit higher than them. He's so much more higher than them. Like, not even in the same league with them. So much higher than them. And his name is a name above every other name. Philippians chapter 2, verse number 9, wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. It's interesting to note the name Jesus itself. Stick with me for just a second. Hear me out, okay? The name Jesus itself is not a unique biblical name. The Greek name for Jesus was the name Yeshua or Joshua. So believe it or not, the name Jesus itself is not a unique name. But Lord Jesus Christ Messiah, (laughs) there's only one of those. And there'll never be another, and we never need another. So it's less about his actual name given to him by his parents that was given to him actually by the angels, which was given to him by God, Jesus. It's more about the position of his authority is a place. It's a name above every other name. Lord Jesus Christ, Messiah, is greater than any name ever in the history of the universe. Peter says in the book of Acts, Neither is there any other name given under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. It's the only name that can save your soul, the name of Jesus. It's a name that's so great that we sing songs about it. Jesus, 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 there's just something about that name. Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know, fills my every longing, keeps me singing as I go. Has anybody ever written a a song about your name before? My wife's name's Angela, and so there's a song called Angie, you know? But, like, nobody sings that about her. Think about the name of Jesus. How many songs have been written in human history about one name? Why? Because it's a name above every other name. It's unique. It's high. It's holy. It's lifted up, the name of Jesus. It's such a big deal because Jesus Christ is God. (laughs) I'm going to pull over for just a second and teach you something, okay? The fact that Jesus Christ is God is what we call the deity of Christ. If you're taking notes, you should probably write that down if you don't know it already. The deity of Christ, get this, is a non-negotiable Bible doctrine. If you do not believe in the deity of Christ, you are not a Christian, period. If Jesus Christ is not God, if he's just a good man, or if he's just a prophet, or he's a good teacher, then he could not save us from our sins. If he cannot save us from our sins, we need another Savior. If we need another Savior, then Jesus Christ as our Savior is bankrupt if he is not God. So we need to keep looking for another Savior because our whole faith is toast. And so do people actually deny the deity of Christ all day long? So-called Christians, people that try to get this too, (laughs) everything that calls itself Christian is not Christian. Okay? You say, well, it would be really easy if people would label themselves. I agree. I wish people would come to your front door with a sign that says cult on it, but they don't, okay? 
But if you know what to look for, their name tags can speak just as loud, okay? Who gets to determine who's a Christian or not? The Bible. So, when people say things like Mormons, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Jesus was a regular guy like us who became a God. We look at that and go, hold up, I don't know that I agree with that. Well, Jesus Christ wasn't always God. He became a God. And when you and I die, we get to become the gods of our own universe. Yeah, that doesn't hold biblical water. You are not a Christian if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is God. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus Christ was a lower form of God. But they believe that Jehovah is God and Jesus Christ is a lesser God. So they believe that Jesus Christ is not really God. And you say, well, it's really hard to argue against the fact that Jesus Christ is God. I mean, anybody with, you know, a cursory knowledge of the Bible would be able to prove that, right? I mean, John chapter 1, verse number 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was, help me, God. You can't argue that. It's right there, black and white. The Word was God. Jesus Christ is God. He's always been God. This here says that Jesus Christ is God. How do you argue against that? The only way that you can argue the fact that Jesus Christ is not God is if, the, if you do this. You change the Bible. So Jehovah's Witnesses, believe it or not, use what's called the New World Translation. John 1.1, 1, 1, no lie, in the New World Translation. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a, lowercase g, God. Wait a minute, you can't do that. Oh, they did. Just make up your own Bible, and it can say what you want it to say. We would say... You're, you're not a Christian. Oh, yes, we are. <laughs> no, you're not. According to the very definition of what it means to be a Christian, you are not a Christian. So, again, I'm not trying to be mean or ugly or anything like that. I'm, I'm definitely not passing judgment because I don't have the authority to judge the Scriptures do. But if you call yourself a Christian yet deny the basic tenets of the Christian faith, you're not a Christian. And if you try to jump on the Christian bandwagon and pretend to be a Christian while denying the Christian faith, that makes you a cult. Again, we don't like to use terms like that. We need to label stuff for what they are. If you deny the deity of Christ, you're not a Christian. If you call yourself a Christian and yet deny the deity of Christ, you're in a cult. Muslims deny the deity of Christ. They believe that Jesus was a prophet, a good teacher, but Jesus was not the Son of God. Okay, you're not a Christian. And so again, people who say that Muslims and Christians, we believe the same, we just have uh, different names for gods, that's not a biblical idea either. Jesus Christ is God. Verse number six, we see that God commands the angels of heaven to worship him. Verse number six, and again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, let all the angels of God worship him. So God tells the angels of heaven that they should worship God the Son, Jesus Christ. Now, again, if you know your Bible and Jesus is not God, that becomes super problematic. Because God says he won't share his glory with anybody else. He will not allow anyone else to be worshipped except for God. So for God to command that the angels of heaven worship God the Son requires that he actually be God the Son. It goes one step further in verse number eight. God the Father unto the Son saith, verse number eight, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. So God the Father calls Jesus Christ God, God. So, again, the only takeaway that we have for this is that Jesus is God. Well, who said that? God the Father said it. That's all that we need. 
Again, John, throughout the gospel, John makes account, a glorious account time and time and time again that Jesus Christ is God, but God the Father said it right here in Hebrews chapter 1, thy throne, O God. So here we see that Jesus Christ is 100% God. Now it's important to note, again, sidetrack, good important for, for help for your Bible theology and understanding of Scripture. That God has three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are all equal, yet separate, persons of God. You say, well, does that mean that we have three different gods? No, it's one God, three distinct persons. How does that work? It's kind of confusing, and every kind of uh, correlation people try to make just always falls short, but just is what it is. So the Bible doesn't use the word Trinity, it uses the word Godhead uh, to describe God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, false teaching on the Trinity modalism you want to write that down m-o-d-a-l-i-s-m modalism it's popular among among what are referred to as oneness pentecostals they believe that god exists in one god but yet three different modes that god is kind of a shapeshifter when he needs to that when god the father was in heaven and needed somebody to redeem mankind he changed into the mode of god the son and heaven was empty while he was being god the son when God needs to be a spirit, he switches over to spirit, then he switches back to being God the Father. That could rationally pass water if you were just kind of explaining it that way. Go, okay, that, I guess it kind of makes sense. But it doesn't make a lick of sense when you look at the Bible. God the Father says to God the Son, thy throne, O God, is established forever. He's talking to a different person, not himself. If you take a look at the baptism of Christ, God the Son being baptized. He hears a voice from heaven, which is the Father. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit comes down like a dove from heaven. You see all three people of the Trinity in one verse. There's not a lot of mode switching going on there. So modalism we would reject as false heretical teaching on the Trinity. That God exists in three distinct persons. And so again, when you read through people's uh, doctrinal statements on their website and stuff like that, you need to see what they say about the Trinity. Again, most people get it right, but a handful of folks get it wrong. Modalism is a false teaching on the Trinity. But God the Father recognizes the deity of God the Son, calls him God. Psalm 45, verse number 6 is a prophecy of this. Psalm 45, 6 says this. Mind you, Psalms 45, 6. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hayest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with oil of gladness above thy fellows. So we see that prophesied in Psalms what God would say in the book of Hebrews. And so we see a prophecy fulfilled uh, of God the Father, speaking of God the Son, referring to him as God. It's also interesting to note this too. This is interesting. The kingdom of God is actually the kingdom of Jesus. Again, if we take a look at verse number 8. But unto the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom, your kingdom. Now, it's not wrong to call it the kingdom of God. When Jesus spoke throughout the Gospels, he would call it the kingdom of God. But he was actually speaking of his own kingdom. Because who is king of kings and lord of lords? It's Jesus Christ. Who will sit on the throne of David and rule for a thousand reigns? A thousand year reign. Jesus Christ will. And so when we talk about the kingdom of God, according to God the Father, it's actually the kingdom of Christ himself. Isaiah chapter 9, verse number 7 prophesies this of thy kingdom, 
uh, the increase of the government peace, there should be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it, the judgment with justice from henceforth and for even forever. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will perform this. So God says that we're going to establish a, a kingdom and Jesus Christ will be king. So again, it's important that we wrap our head around this because so many times we think, well, Jesus got my ticket punched to heaven and I think I'm done with him. No, 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 no. Jesus Christ is our risen Savior. He's our risen King. We are subjects of Jesus' kingdom. Oftentimes you'll hear me encourage you to not live for this world, but live for the kingdom. Stop thinking about the approval of the world and live for the approval of the kingdom. Jesus is our king. That is his kingdom that we're living for. Jesus is also the creator and sustainer of life. Again, we see in verse number three, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. So Jesus sustains all things in the world. But take a look at verse 10. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. So here we see, According to Hebrews chapter 1, verse number 10, Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. And that also lines up with what the Bible tells us in John chapter 1, verse number 3. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Which lines up with Colossians chapter 1, verse number 16. For by him were all things created in heaven and earth, invisible and invisible, whether it be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, speaking of Jesus Christ. So hang with me for just a second, okay? If Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all things, and all things were created by him and for him, then we back up to Genesis chapter 1, verse number 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Who is it talking about in Genesis 1-1? Jesus. You're scared to say it? Just say it. Jesus. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. So when God created the heavens and the earth, he's talking about Jesus Christ. And in creation, again, go back to the book of Genesis. We find that God the Father is there at creation with God the Son. God the Son speaks everything into existence. And what happens? The Spirit moved upon the waters of the deep. We see the Holy Spirit in Genesis chapter 1. Like, God is so perfect in his planning. And again, we, we take a look at, wow, okay, God the Son was with God the Father at the beginning with the Holy Spirit, and they created everything that we see to this day. Six days of creation, and he stepped back from his creation. It still continues to exist. Why? Because he sustains it with his own power. It's interesting to think, too, that many different world religions have ideas of how we got things or how things continue. If you remember the story of Atlas, and the idea was that Atlas would hold the world upon his shoulders and it would basically hold everything in place and the weight of the world literally upon his shoulders. But it's interesting, Atlas just kind of held everything in place, didn't he? He didn't create anything new. He didn't sustain it. He didn't have a trajectory that he was leading things. And so when Jesus Christ created and sustains things, it's not like Jesus just kind of keeps everything spinning. Jesus keeps everything spinning and moving towards his expected end, which is what? The kingdom. All this fits together. From creation to the kingdom, Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all of it. And you and I happen to be here in the middle between creation and the kingdom, and he continues to keep things spinning and everything moving in our lives too. And it's crazy to think about this. Get this. 
that Jesus isn't just creating stuff and stepping back, and he's got like the world taken care of. He's working on you and me at the same time too. God knows where you're at. Jesus is meeting your needs today, just like he did yesterday. When you fall and stumble, you didn't just need the gospel the day you got saved. You need the gospel today, tomorrow, and every other day till you die. Because Jesus is there sustaining you every step along the way. Next, it tells us that Jesus Christ is eternal God. Jesus wasn't an afterthought. He always has been and always will be. You can take a look at verse number 10. Thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they shall wax old as at the garment. As a vesture thou shalt fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Again, one of the attributes of God is eternality. Always has been, always will be. Didn't have a creation. I remember as a kid thinking to myself, like, oh, well, uh, December 25th is God's birthday. No, God doesn't have a birthday. And, and December 25th is not when Jesus was probably born. Uh, but, and that crushed me as a kid. I couldn't grasp the concept, right? Okay, well, well, who's God's parents? God didn't have parents. He always has been. Well, who created God? God wasn't created. He always has been. Well, when did he start? He didn't start. He's always been. Well, what happened before there was God? There was nothing before God. Well, where did he come from? If there was anything before him, he always has been. It's just like trying to wrap your head around it even as an adult doesn't make sense. But Jesus Christ never had a beginning. He'll never have an end. He is eternal with God because he is God. And again, just like verse number 11 says, a vesture. That's like your, your, your coat. It, it can be folded up and put away. That's how you and I are going to be. We're going to have an end one day. Jesus Christ always has been and he always will be. And that should bring us hope because the one who is for us, the one who saved us, the one who is, is with us at all times is creator God of the universe who is by our side. Tell me this, what do you have going on this week that is more difficult than speaking everything into existence in six days? You got something bigger than that? What need do you have that is so great that the one who spoke everything into existence can't just make that happen too? What problem do you have that you can't make it past that is greater than the weight of your sin that you could never fix if you were given a thousand years to resolve it on your own? What do you got that's bigger than that? The answer is nothing. So whatever you're facing, know this, Jesus Christ is always greater always and so we see that jesus speaks verse number two god spoke in the past by the prophets today jesus speaks and here's what he speaks jesus speaks to you today that you are loved again i don't believe that the order of things or any coincidence in the bible galatians chapter 5 verses 22 and 23 the fruit of the spirit is love and god says to you today you are loved doesn't matter who you are, what you got going on, what you've been through, how you failed, God loves you. Jesus speaks today and the cross says to you that you are forgiven. Again, it doesn't give us the ability to continue to sin against the grace of God and just continue to sin again and again and get away with it. But here's the thing, you don't have to carry your sin any longer. You're forgiven if you come to God for forgiveness. I couldn't forgive your sin if I wanted to. And believe it or not, I'd love to be able to just blanket forgive people's sins wouldn't that be awesome i can't the bible says who can forgive sins but god and the answer is nobody but jesus can forgive you today if you come to him and seek his forgiveness he'll forgive you in a split second 
I'm thankful with God there's no penance. There's no things you got to do to get out of jail or to get back to a right relationship with him. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because he forgives. Jesus speaks today and he says you're forgiven. Jesus speaks today and he says that he's worthy of our faith. You can trust him. I don't know what you got going on this week, but I know this, he's, he's, he's enough. Guaranteed. I don't know what you feel like is irreparably broken in your life, but Jesus is in the restoration business. He's worthy of your faith. Hey, look, he's seen more than you have, and he's still faithful. <laughs> he's been around since the beginning of time. He'll be around after the end of time. And he's always faithful, and you can trust him. And if you're honest and you look back at your life, you can say, he's never let you down. Have there been times you've been disappointed that it didn't get your way? Sure. But that's how any parent treats their children that they love. <laughs> I don't always give my kids everything they want. I give them what's best for them, though. My daughter Tallulah, she's four, she's discovered Oreo McFlurries every single day. Can I get an Oreo McFlurry? And like, I relented last night and I said, okay, fine, and we're at the drive-thru at McDonald's. And I said, I need a snack-sized Oreo McFlurry. She goes, ooh, ooh, extra large, extra large. It's like, first of all, they don't have it extra large. Second of all, you couldn't finish an extra large. Third of all, you're lucky you're even getting a snack size tonight, okay? So pipe down back here. Uh, but, uh, now, do I give her Oreo McFlurries three meals a day? No, I don't because it's not good for her. Sometimes she needs to eat her chicken. Sometimes she needs to eat her steak. I don't make her eat broccoli because I don't either. Uh, but <laughs> I love my kids. And I want to give them what's best for them. Sometimes I'll let them have candy. That's fine, but you can't have candy all the time. God's a loving father. He doesn't always give you what you want, but he gives you what's best for you. And you can trust him. Jesus speaks to us that he's all-powerful in all situations. Again, there's nothing come up that he can't handle. There's nothing that's come up that's ever taken him by surprise. There's nothing you have that's too difficult for him. And here's the great part about it. He wants to take it. He's like, hey, load me up. Let me have it. Casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you is what the Bible says. He's like, hey, you got problems? I'm the problem solver. Let me have it. So he's willing to receive that. But here's what I really want to get down to, bottom line in this passage, and I'm done today. A proper view of Jesus helps us to see that he's greater than anything that this world has to offer. I think that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say to these Jews. Like, hey, Jesus is greater than your religious system that you're stuck in over here. Jesus is greater than the law because he's the fulfillment of the law. He's greater than your high priest because he's the ultimate high priest. He's greater than any prophet that we've ever had because he's the last prophet. He's greater than any sacrifice we can provide because you've provided sacrifice once and for all. We don't have to make sacrifices once a year anymore. Jesus is greater than King David because Jesus has a throne that will have no end. He's a greater king. And he's trying to show them, hey, look at how great Jesus is. And you say, oh, that's awesome. Good for those Jews. No, no, no. Here's the application for us today. I know you look at what the world has to offer sometimes and you really want that. Let me tell you this, Jesus is always greater. I know you look at what everybody else has and you want what everybody else has, but let me tell you, Jesus is greater. I know you want to feel successful by the world's standard. Let me tell you, Jesus is greater. 
I know you want more likes on the internet. You want people to hit a button that makes you feel something. But I'm telling you, Jesus is greater than any social media following. And at the end of the day, you've got to make a decision. Do I want the approval of the world or do I want the approval of the kingdom? And let me tell you, Jesus is always greater. 100% of the time. So maybe today you just need to pick a side. Who's going to be greater in my life this week? Who's going to be greater in my life from this point forward in my life? What will I live for? Will I live for the world or will I live for the kingdom of Jesus? Maybe you're here saying you don't even know for sure that you're saved. Friend, please don't leave here without knowing for sure your sins are forgiven and heaven is your home because you need to be born again. That's the beginning for you. But for those of you that are Christians, maybe you value the wrong things. And you look at this today and you go, wow, Jesus is so much more valuable than I gave him credit for. I know there's been times in my life where I looked at like, hey, Jesus was a means to an end. Jesus got my ticket punched to heaven, and I think I'm good. I'll give him a high five when I get to heaven, and I don't really need him. No, no, no. You look at this, and you go, no, no. I need Jesus like every day. I need Jesus like every hour. Like if, if, if I don't have Jesus, everything falls apart. If he's the sustainer of all things, he's the only thing that keeps my life together. I need him more than I ever have before. And the older that I get in life, hopefully the wiser that I get and the more that I realize how finite I am, how small I am, how fragile life is. Man, I'm telling you, when I was 15, man, I was never going to die, you know. When I was 21, I was invincible, you know. But now I look at stuff and I begin to weigh the risk. Hmm, I don't know if I want to do that or not. Why? Because I've got a little bit wiser with age. And begin to value things differently. Hey, will this give me more time with my kids? Hey, will this give me more time to serve Jesus? Will this do more for the kingdom? I don't want to live for myself. I've done that before and there's no value there. Let's put the value where it belongs on Jesus Christ. Let's live in light of a wonderful Savior this week. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church Podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.